Welcome back to Shrinking It Down, Mental Health Made Simple. I'm Gene Bresson. And I'm Steve Schlossman. And today we're going to talk about something, again, it's not simple at all. We're going to talk about eating disorders. But there's no way we could possibly fit all of the complexity of eating disorders into one of these. No, and we have a, we have a bunch of blogs on, on anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa. Um, so one of the things I thought we would talk about today... It's not really a diagnosis, um, but who cares? It's, it's what people out there are calling emotional eating. Well, it, it makes its way to a diagnosis. I mean, there's criteria for binge eating disorder. Yeah, well, which this isn't binge eating it. disorder. So emotional eating, so when, when I, when, and in fact, I'm going to be writing a blog about this, or maybe I have already, I don't know. You know, I'm thinking of um, situations in which, you know, uh, you're really stressed or you're really uncomfortable or you're really anxious or, and you're not eating out of hunger. You're eating as a way of kind of like coping. Yes, you remember that scene in The Big Sick? I don't know if you've seen that movie yet. It's a great film where they're worried about uh, uh, Zoe Kazan's character. And he says to the mom, the boyfriend says to the mom, hey, do you want to stress eat with me? That's the phrase. And they sit down and they have this like whipped cream and ice cream and waffle, all this stuff. And they just sit there because they're so worried. And so they're dealing with their anxiety and their stress by just kind of stuffing their mouth. So it really, really it, unhealthy stuff, too. Yeah, well, that's right. So it's really, so it is a phenomenon. And whether it's a, a DSM, Diagnostic and Statistic Manual disorder or not, it doesn't matter. It is a, a well known phenomenon that, that, um, so what is it? So it's, it's eating. It's using food in a way to manage stress, anxiety, or something. But it's a craving. It's eating. It's a sudden craving. It's not based on hunger. It's not based on kind of the need to eat. And oftentimes, it's 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 it's, it's carbohydrates or kind of fast food. You know, it's easy comfort foods. Yeah, I think it's. I think you've already made it simpler than it is because people who will eat when they're stressed, will say they were hungry. So you can't say it's not based on hunger because that's kind of a non-starter. They'll say, well, I was hungry. That's, that's, that's why I ate. What we're saying is that you are eating at a time when there's actually not a good reason for you to be hungry. Right. Like, like you've, you've had enough, you had dinner, but for reasons that are outside of the ordinary for you, you don't usually do this, you eat a gallon of ice cream. Are you but it's also, and it's all right. That's that's right. And it's but it's also associated with depression, or anxiety, or another eating disorder like binge eating disorder or bulimia. Um, and it runs along the spectrum. It can be look the first what the freshman fifteen, right? People talk about that all the time. The fifteen pounds you put on your freshman year. It's a very stressful time your freshman year of college, especially if you go away because there's all these things you're adjusting to. And even if you don't go away, so the exams are hard, all that. There's food around all the time. The food happens to be not all that healthy. I probably ate more pizza in my freshman year than I've ever eaten in my life. And weight goes up at that point. That's stress-related, too. doesn't necessarily make its way to a diagnosis, but it's stress. So um, what, what can we do about it? I mean, so, so, the, so it, is, it is clearly an issue. It's clearly a problem. And oftentimes... What it's also associated with is feelings of um, regret or shame or upset after you do it. So in other words, you're doing it to cope with something stressful, but it doesn't work because you actually feel worse oftentimes after you've done it. It's not like, like you're eating a gallon right. of ice cream so, and then so you feel great. Yeah. You, know, you, just, you feel terrible afterwards. So, so that's an important point, we, and, and we need to distinguish it from just 
getting together with your friends and eating just a ton of lousy food for you and because it's fun. Yeah, you, that's different. Right. right. That's not the same thing. And feeling like, 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 like a big oh, Thanksgiving we're dinner or a big Chinese dinner and feeling yeah. like, you know, oh, my God, I feel... And, and everybody's yeah. kind of like... No, this is like this is like the Louis C.K. routine about eating a Cinnabon. Like, no one's happy in the line at the Cinnabon thing. Nobody wants one. They're all going to get it, but nobody wants one. Like, like it's it's comes from this place of um, of well, you know, it's 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 like classic from psychiatry. It's an action taking the place of a feeling, right? right? Like that's what we always talk. And it and it's and it supplants a bad feeling with another bad feeling. Of regret or but shame that or comes remorse, later. right? It's comes after afterwards, the afterwards. So, in other words, you have a bad feeling, you do something about it, which turns out what you hope which is maladaptive, is, which is maladaptive, and then you actually feel worse. Well, you feel, or you feel differently. Worse. You feel different, right? You feel differently worse. Yeah. So, 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 do you think that there's a <laughs> an unconscious way that we kind of substituting depression or anxiety for like? Shame, guilt, and regret about eating. I mean, it's substituting one bad thing for another. Well, so, so in the in the folks who've written about it, they'll when they offer psychological, like old-fashioned, you know, have a long beard, stroke it, psychiatry kind of um, stuff or psychology stuff, they'll say that it's a defense against depression, and the defense is it gives you something concrete to feel depressed about. Oh, because you're sitting there saying. I'm down, but I don't have a good reason to be down. Now I'm down because I just ate a gallon of ice cream or, you know, five orders of pasta. I don't think it's, again, that simple because it, it tends, you tend to lean towards, it's not like you're eating a gallon of carrots, let's put it that way. So, so you tend to lean towards things that are not so good for you. And they're largely carbohydrate based, and there's a there is some biology behind that that's just now being illuminated. Right, right. But so how do we get to this point? So what, what, what do you think? leads to using food in this kind of a bad way? Um, so, so, I mean, we're obviously... Besides TV commercials. Yeah, yeah. I, so there's... Well, TV commercials are among the Yeah, things, no, no. Right? I know. That. I'm, I'm not joking about that. I mean, I do think no, that that's one of the things because... It's not even like it's hidden. They'll say, look at this commercial. Wouldn't you like to have this? Like, that was one of the old Hardee's commercials. Yeah. So, and, and they time them for things like ball games and, yeah. you know, when you're likely to want to eat... So media exposure. Yeah, so there's exposure... There's uh, the um, easy access, right? Mm-hmm. All the exposure in the world won't matter if there's not access. Yep. So they say on the commercial, order now and you'll get your pizza in 12 minutes. Yeah. Right? So, so, so it's, it's like quick. a done deal. Yeah. So it's quick, easy. Uh, there's usually a fairly high glucose content, even right. in, in the things that aren't glucosey. Well, carbohydrates foods. are sugars. Right, right. Yeah. So it, it satisfies this, um, what some people feel is this evolutionary craving yeah. for glucose, since glucose was in high right. demand for most of our existence as, as a species. So those, I think, things come together. And then there's um, the, you know, there's this difference between people who will gorge themselves in despair when they're alone versus when they're with other people. Right. And so there's an, an isolative aspect to it, or there's a community aspect right. to it based on who you are. And so one, one of the things that I think a lot of uh, parents have asked me um, is, what do we do to actually prevent this? You know, in other words, what can we do in our homes to actually prevent this kind of stuff? And, and I'll, I can name a few, and then maybe you, you should name some. So one of the things I usually tell them is... Um, Model good good eating behaviors at home. I mean, we know that 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 eating behavior is kind of our family oriented. So, eating good foods, portion control, eating slowly, eating as a family, 
um, cooking together, making food preparation and eating kind of a social, you know, oriented thing. Um, not but, using food. Well, another big one that I think is really important is oftentimes we'll use food as rewards. So we'll like we give our dogs treats. So using, I think that's okay though. I, I think in moderation that's absolutely awesome. fine. Like we do it all. I'm going to buy myself a Starbucks special stupid drink after today because it's been a long day. That's using food as a reward that I'm able to give myself. Our kids can't give themselves these things. So we can say, hey, you get your work done. You, you get, get a cookie? It. Yeah. I think that's okay. In fact, all the behavioral people would say it's okay. If that's the only way you reward them, that's probably not so okay. good. Yeah, okay. I, I get this. So what are some other things that we can do to, to kind of like prevent this from happening? Um, well, I want to go back to what you said a second ago, and then, and then I'll, I'll go there. I think, yeah, eating together is a great idea. The fact of the matter is, and there are a lot of folks who just can't make ends meet without one parent being working, or they only have one right. parent, or that parent, even if they have one parent, that parent's out working. So you can't always eat together. So if the goal is to eat together every day, you're going to fall short. Right. Of it. Most of us are. We're going to lose that So one. you say, maybe you aim for one. It could be a breakfast. It could be lunch. It doesn't have to be more than 10 or 12 minutes. But that does model a slow down eating and ties eating with something other than just getting the food into your mouth. There's that. Um, most people who eat in large quantities with huge caloric binges when they're despairing kind of dissociate during that time. So, What do you mean by dissociate? They lose track of time. So they, uh, they become disconnected. That's what the word means, dissociate. They become disconnected from time as it passes while they're eating. So suddenly 45 minutes have gone by and they actually don't have a good recollection of it. So helping people to be grounded, to be aware of the time passing, having a clock readily available when the food is out. So putting literally, and this has been studied, putting a clock next to the refrigerator that's big enough that you can't help but to see it, and then saying no more than five minutes. You can only get so much food in your mouth in five minutes. So little things to help control it. Having in mind what that thing you'll eat will be when you get stressed rather than going and looking for whatever you can find. So, so in other words, carrots or <laughs> Cheerios or, yeah. you know, or I mean, it's okay every now and then to have cookies. It's okay every yeah, day to have cookies sure. as long as it's within reason. But have it in mind. I'll have a couple of cookies. I've got them already. It's, it's the out of controlness that people feel bad about afterwards. The reason they feel bad when you ask them isn't that they just ate a gazillion calories. It's that they felt out of control. So, so how about this? How about teaching our kids when they're feeling stressed or anxious about other ways of coping besides using food. Yeah. So in other words, if you see your kids using food in that way, or they see us using food in that way, because look, plenty of us do, do it too. So the adults will do this and then the kids will follow suit. So teaching them other coping mechanisms rather than using food. Or it doesn't even have to be a this or that. Teach them to cope with less food when they're using it to cope. Rather than saying... So you're saying it's okay to use food to cope? Yeah, in fact, um, uh, you know, that, that book that, that uh, Mike Jelinek... Let and, Yeah, and Ron Kleiman wrote, Let yeah. Them Eat Cake, sort of said that if you just let kids eat what they want to eat... They'll do fine. Generally speaking, now this is probably an overstatement, they will reach, make their way towards a complete diet, even though it won't be a, com- a well-balanced diet at every sit-down. 
But I think it's okay. I mean, it's a, it's a very normal human desire to eat, right? It's, it's in our hypothalamus. It's one of the most primitive parts of our brain that tells us we're hungry. It's awfully hard to ignore that. And the hypothalamus is so close to the region of the brain that feels distress that it makes sense in some ways that when you feel distress, your brain tricks you into eating. Because we know from an evolutionary perspective that if we're distressed, we better eat. Because we don't know if we're going to get food again. So it's hard to fight that. I think what we have to do is limit it rather than have it go away altogether, unless you make your way into like a severely pathologic state, right, where you're eating so much that you're gaining gargantuan amounts of weight. And then you, then you might be in this other category where it's a kind of all or nothing group. And then you're in trouble. Right. So is there anything else? I mean, and, and, and what about the relationship between, uh, between this, about this emotional eating and anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa? So most people, I mean, you know the answer to this too, most people think that this stuff's on a spectrum. So uh, there are very specific criteria that the DSM has given us. These are um, just criteria. That's what they are. They're descriptive criteria that help us to say this person has anorexia nervosa, which is when you don't eat that much and you lose a lot of weight. And it's actually defined by how much weight you lose. There's bulimia nervosa where you have compensatory mechanisms to uh, shed the weight. And they can be actually normal weight, a lot of those folks. So you actually eat a lot in a small amount of time and feel terrible about it, but then you purge. Right, which can either be with laxatives or throwing up. These things or all exist. Or, or exercise, right. right. In fact, that's one of the criteria. Yeah. So these things exist along this spectrum, right? So I, I don't. So they're all using food in some dysfunctional way that is not evolutionary. It's not adaptive. It's not adaptive right. in an evolutionary sense. Right. But it is working for them in the moment. Right. So it's helping them to appreciate that after this moment, you're not going to like this. Right. You're not going to like the way you felt. Okay. So let's try and understand it. Okay. So now it's time in the show for that monumental mental health myth. And here's one for you. Okay. Um, we could use this for every single thing we talk about here. Eating disorders, all eating disorders, are caused by bad parenting. Well, obviously that's not true. Um, you know, it, 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 we always want to kind of blame the parents. In fact, it would be bad parenting to say that all psychiatric disorders are caused by bad parenting. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But, the, you know, no, look, it, it's, you know, Parents of kids that have eating disorders um, didn't do anything particularly specifically wrong necessarily to bring about that eating disorder. I mean, eating disorders have, as we pointed out, have a complex basis. There's a biological basis for it. So some actually are genetically, you know, they're inherited. Well, there's a huge amount of genetic data right now. There's a huge, right. So there's a genetic component. There's a biological component. There's um, gargantuan a, cultural component, a huge cultural component. There's the influence of media, as we talked about yeah. before. So um, there's many, many different components, and actually, you actually have to have all of these components put together to create this perfect storm. Which is not the same thing as saying that you can't help parents to change their behaviors to help the kid. No, parents actually have an incredible role in, in promoting. Um, good behaviors or helping correct. In fact, the most evidence-based method for working with anorexia nervosa, the, the Maudsley method, is working with parents and families in terms of eating together in a more productive and pro-social and proactive manner. 
so so this But it's important that you don't say to those parents what you're doing before was bad parenting. No. What you're saying is it didn't work for your kid. So we're going to change it. Something went wrong. Right. And 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 it's like everything in, in, in psychiatry and medicine in general, it's really multiple factors all together that kind of come together to bring about a problem area, and parents can have a major role in uh, helping to solve they that have, problem. They do have a major role. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. Here's yours. And here's why that I will read to you. Um, everybody with an eating disorder is incredibly skinny. Um, that's not true just by definition, right? Uh, so... Uh, bulimia nervosa is not has nothing in its criteria that requires you to be below a normal body mass. As a matter of fact, most folks with bulimia are normal weight. Right, right. And then there's this um, fascinating discussion about whether, you know, once you're a weight recovered person who has suffered from anorexia nervosa, do you still have anorexia nervosa? Because now you no longer meet the criteria. Right. But is that kind of coping still there, that control coping that allows you in the face of enormous hunger. Like it's one of the that's a big myth, right? That people in anorexia aren't hungry. They're really hungry. Yeah. It's all about resisting that hunger. Yes, and you know, one of the things that and with this this gets into a whole other different podcast, but um, uh, besides the genetics, you know, I've worked with eating disorders for many, many years. And when I first meet a family and, and there's a kid that's got anorexia nervosa, I say, you know, you know the, low, the weight is low and we've got to bring back the weight and there are all kinds of medical complications and risks and things, you know, risk factors. But one of the things that we're going to find out is that ultimately this is, has to do a lot with identity and with relationships and with self-esteem. And people look at me like I'm from Mars. It turns out that one of the ways that people use food or not use food is to have some sense of identity, to have some sense of control, to have some relationship. Find me, find me the culture in human history that hasn't had important ceremonies revolving around food. Right. It's always been part of the way we relate to each other. So it makes sense that when we don't relate as well with each other as we ought to, one of the ways it gets manifest is in how we eat. Right. So if, so the thing that actually, so if you don't meet diagnostic criteria for anorexia nervosa or bulimia or binge eating disorder or emotional eating, it doesn't mean there aren't other issues or problems that we have to deal with. We just don't have that particular label because we don't have that criteria. But there are other remnants that folks will have to deal with for the rest of their lives. Yeah, and, and, and i got to be honest here as we wrap up. Every time I talk about this, this is, this is kind of what happens to us as clinicians, I get hungry. Every time, like every time I sit with a patient with an eating disorder, I find myself feeling hungry. Like there is a social aspect to this that gets communicated in a less than conscious way. Like I'm hungry right now in a way that I wasn't before this started. Really? Yeah. Wow. It's, and it's just something, it's something <laughs> is that empathy? about it. I don't know. Empathy? Or is it just experience or is it just that? I don't know. I'll know after I eat. <laughs> <laughs> would it go? Right. Would it go right. Get yeah, we should go get some meat. I uh, know, seriously, I, mean, I think that's that's an interesting kind of bit of information too. That's why it drives everybody else in the household a little bit crazy when there's one person with eating. Wow, that's that, that's interesting. Well, thanks a lot for listening, everybody, and watching. And um, if you have any questions, comments, other points of view, or uh, want us to do anything else, I mean, eating disorders are really complicated. They're not simple. There are many of them, uh, food. We haven't even talked about obesity. I mean, that's another, and I it's interesting. 
when people talk about eating disorders, they don't put obesity in that ballpark as yeah. well. But it's a huge problem, and it's a major risk factor, health factor. So tell us how you like this, and we'll see you next time. Thanks very much. I'm Gene Bereson. And I'm going to go eat. <laughs>